But what I tell my my medical students is to not try to become more like medicine, but let medicine bend to fit you a bit. Because when we enter medicine, we're healthier and more whole than I think medicine is right now. Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and expert clinicians in critical care. We ask them to share their insights about relevant critical care topics. And for today, we go to Detroit, Michigan to discuss forming a therapeutic relationship in the ICU. So before we get started, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Rena Oddish. I'm the director of the pulmonary hypertension program at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, and I also am the medical director for care experience for the Henry Ford Health System. So uh, you recently wrote and published a book, which is now an LA Times bestseller, entitled In Shock, My Journey from Death to Recovery and the Redemptive Power of Hope. And many have described it as a very gripping, powerful, and emotive account um, that you experienced. I was hoping that you'd be able to share with us some of your journey over the last uh, decade. Absolutely. I had this experience at the very end of my fellowship training. So I had gone into pulmonary and critical care medicine, um, really very interested in the care of critically ill patients. And... At the very last day of my training, I became critically ill myself. I had, unbeknownst to me, a liver tumor, hepatic adenoma, and being pregnant, the hormones of pregnancy had caused it to grow and then rupture. And I basically lost my entire blood volume into the space around my liver. I developed a massive subcapsular hematoma, the pregnancy was lost. There was a placental abruption. I went into hemorrhagic shock, kidney failure, acute liver failure. Um, I had what's known in trauma as the triad of death, where the blood is too cold and too acidic to clot. And really um, became one of my own patients in the space of about six hours went from being a critical care physician and ready to take care of patients to being critically ill myself. And that experience um, really began what for me felt like my actual education in critical care. There was so much that I didn't know despite having been immersed in it, you know, all of my professional life my illness revealed to me aspects of the care that we provide that were just opaque to me. And my recovery um, did as well. It took about six months to recover from that initial acute illness. And over the next eight years, I would have multiple subsequent surgeries um, and procedures, and each time I felt I saw things through a different lens, through a patient lens, that was really transformative for me. Um, I'll give you examples. I would have thought as a critical care physician that all I would have cared about really in my care was that the medicine be really 
exceptional that I be cared for in a way that would bring me to health as quickly as possible. But what I found as a patient was that I felt so incredibly vulnerable and uh, that my my suffering felt so acute that if my providers didn't recognize some of the more emotional aspects of my illness, that it was difficult for me to form a therapeutic relationship with them. That if, you know, they came in and just told me the plan for the day without really knowing what I was dealing with, it felt false to me. And I recognized myself, you know, in every failure that I experienced, I saw how how often I had presupposed what was right for my patient. Um, there were lots of times where things were said to me in a way that I would have said myself, but not have thought about how they might land on a patient. I heard myself being described as trying to die, which didn't feel true to me. Um, I felt that I was trying very hard not to die, but I recognized that there was a, a bit of um, an adversarial position that I was being put in as a patient um, just by virtue of those words. That's incredible. Um, and you, you describe yourself as being vulnerable and emotional. And how has this informed your ability to communicate with both families and clinicians now? You know, I think in many ways my experience reshaped my own expectations of the care that I provided. I had always expected to provide really high-quality, safe, effective care. Um, But I honestly believed that the way to reduce the suffering of my patients would be just to foreshorten the space between their illness and their, their state of health again. I didn't know that spending time in that space with the suffering, just holding space with that, acknowledging the difficulties that come with the vulnerability of being ill, and even the loss of identity that comes with critical illness, that that in and of itself had more healing potential than I could have imagined. And so I think I'm a little bit more willing now to accept that my presence itself has value, that attending to patient emotions and fears and uncertainty and acknowledging all of the things that that make it so difficult to be critically ill has value that in some ways matches the medical care that even when I don't have an answer for something or even when I don't have a treatment that I'm still of use and I can attend to my patients even at those times. I I don't think that my training necessarily had taught me those things. And in many ways, you you're asking clinicians to open themselves up to uh, the experiences of their patients, and some clinicians would argue that this may deplete them or make them feel uh, empty or they're giving too much of themselves. How would you respond to these concerns, and what advice would you give them? It's interesting. I definitely myself bought into that paradigm that if I opened those channels um, that I would be depleted. And 
To be honest, I've tried both ways. I've tried having walls up. I've tried having defenses up to protect me, so to speak. It was what was modeled to me as a student. And I've tried the alternative where I admit my shared humanity and I I allow myself to experience the feelings of my patients, even the hardships. And what I've found is that, you know, there's a reciprocity really in empathy that if we are present, it doesn't actually deplete us. It actually nourishes us in a way that many aspects of our job do not. I think we have to be very careful as clinicians, you know, what we attend to. And everything else can feel so much more pressing. I don't know a physician alive today who doesn't feel an incredible sense of mission conflict, that everything's you know, the teaching, the research, the documentation, the billing, everything's just screaming for your attention. And the patient's sort of this one quiet voice that won't ask for much. So it's really up to us to hold that space with the patient sacred and to say that this is where I will find resilience and longevity, that this is the space that will heal me as well and give me the kind of practice that I imagined when I went into medicine. Nobody can do that except us. That is so true. Um, towards the end of your book, um, you provide uh, communication tips for both providers and patients. And uh, in the reviews of your book, um, the, the, they say that uh, these tips should be recommended reading for every medical caregiver. I was hoping you'd be able to share some of these tips uh, that you would give to uh, care providers or patients. Yeah, you know, so much of it is really understanding that we're sharing that space of that clinical encounter as equals and that we're each going into the encounter with our own agenda in a sense and that it's important to value the agenda of the clinician but also the agenda of the patient and really set expectations from the beginning. Um we have a tendency as, as providers, I think, to believe that we know what the outcome of a visit should be before we really hear what the patient's desired outcome is. We tend to control the narrative. You know, I've heard it say that we, we take a history, we don't receive it. So many of my tips um, are really based in just active listening, a kind of radical listening that allows us not to control the narrative, but really let it reveal ourselves. And it, you know, I think the, the thing that everyone thinks when they think about not controlling the encounter is, well, I don't have time for that. But the truth is that there's, there's a real authentic efficiency that comes from allowing your patients to feel heard that if they believe that you care about what they care about, you're better to have, you're more likely to have better outcomes. You're more likely to have adherence. You're more likely to have your patient not come back for the same issue because they feel heard. And so many of the tips are really based on listening, reflecting back what you hear, and making sure that you're honoring the patient's knowledge, their innate knowledge of their body and their disease state in a way that I'm not sure traditional medicine has been set up to do. I agree. That is so important. 
um, especially importance of emphasizing uh, listening to our patients and allowing them to drive the narrative. Um, the president and CEO of Henry Ford you know, called your book a call to action. Um, and I wanted to ask you, in your role now as medical director of care experience, um, how are you able to create and maintain a culture of compassionate and coordinated care? And I think it's really telling that during the book you uh, identify the problems and weaknesses in your system, and your institution actually rose to the challenge of not only listening to you, um, but enrolling you and enlisting you as a um, champion in making sure that uh, patients receive the care that they deserve. I was hoping you could share some of your experiences. Yeah. Um and you're right, it was an absolutely beautiful thing that they did by not just saying they were a learning organization, but to truly embrace it and say, this is healthcare, this is a reflection of who we are. How can we make it better? There are a number of, of layered and even um, parallel processes that are happening right now at Henry Ford. We completely redid the orientation for all new employees so that it was focused on purpose. There are parts of the book where I talk about really the role that, you know, the transporters played in my recovery, um, not maybe some, not maybe a group that people would think necessarily could have healing potential, but in my case, they really made me feel seen and made my suffering feel understood. And so in orientation, we talk about not just what are you here to do, but what's your purpose during your time in our organization. One of the first things I wanted to do when I came back was really provide communication training to my peers and myself, honestly, that I didn't feel that I had had in medical school or residency or fellowship. So we adopted uh, the Vital Talk framework for designing a communications curriculum. And we use improvisational actors to role play really difficult conversations, um, end of life conversation, news about death and dying, just delivering serious news even. And we've been slowly saturating different divisions with that training from resident fellows and senior staff. We've made our way through the departments who really had the most high-intensity conversations, so critical care and ER, palliative care, oncology, cardiology, nephrology. Um, we're really trying to create a new paradigm for communication, and, and what we call it is CLEAR. It's a mnemonic that stands for um, the values, really, that our Providers want their communication to exemplify, so connect. They wanted conversations that truly connected them to their patients. L for listen, to learn to listen radically without an agenda. E, to look for opportunities to empathize with our patients. A is for align, to never make recommendations that aren't aligned with patient values and preferences. And then our respect, and respect really comes back to that real acknowledgement on a fundamental level that while we are the experts in the medicine, that our patients are the experts in their own bodies, and we must never discount that knowledge. We must work in partnership with it, and all of the work that we do has to really honor that. Um, 
We also are developing peer mentoring programs um, and narrative medicine curriculum to help feed the, the frontline care staff and give them access to a community that really does deal with these difficult issues and, and hopefully create a resilient culture so that when bad events happen, which they're bound to, when there are losses or tragedies, you know, we can support each other. Um, we find a lot of hope in, in literature and art. We're trying to integrate that more into our community. There are lots of exciting things happening. That is truly impressive, and I definitely agree with you. I've had the chance to do the Vital Talk uh, seminar, and it definitely focuses on the importance of empathizing and determining whether you need to give a, a emotive response to your patient, yeah. which, as you have said before, um, sometimes we want to think through the problem when we need to connect with the patient uh, instead. Um, I wanted to turn... to data, yes. Exactly, exactly. Um, I want to turn your attention to uh, something a bit more personal. Um, I found it very interesting uh, the, the way that you were able to um, provide a very nuanced uh, and personal uh, understanding of what was happening. And in some ways, your husband was a pillar of strength for you during this whole um, uh, uh, experience. I was hoping you could share maybe... Uh, how your relationship developed as a result of this rather uh, traumatic event? Yeah, you know, when I got sick, we'd only been married a year. And I think we all go into marriages hoping that we've made a good choice, um, but not really knowing how someone will stand up during times of crisis. So we were tested pretty early on. Um, Randy, my husband, was a remarkable support to me. He actually in some ways taught me that the the value of just being present for someone else's suffering because he was the only one, you know, aside from my mom who was around me who didn't have the medical knowledge. He didn't have that toolkit that he could draw off of that all of my colleagues and attendings did. And yet somehow just by being willing to sit with me during the really hard times, he showed me that that's where the healing happens, that being seen and not having someone turn away from you um, is really how we heal each other. And it's been something that I've tried to carry forward. It It's a bit of a funny story that he, I don't think he realized how important he was to me during that time until he actually read the book. And when he read it, you know, he got really teary and he said, I never knew I did a good job, but reading this, I feel like maybe I did. And I felt awful that that was how he found out how valuable he was to me as a caregiver. But I really think it's a statement about how undervalued caregivers are. You know, we take for granted their attending to patients and sometimes they never know how valuable they were to our healing. We'd be able to share maybe uh, three top polls that you would want to impart to trainees or faculties in critical care um, uh, about your experience. Sure. So three top pearls. The, the first, I think, most salient takeaway for me from my experience is that you might be surprised 
that your patient's expectations of you are different from what you expect of yourself and that our patients really do expect us to be human, that they're not holding us to a level of perfection that we often hold ourselves to and that we can be a bit more vulnerable than we had allowed ourselves to be. That there's reciprocity in that, that the kindness and compassion will flow both ways if you do allow yourself to open those channels. The second piece is to really examine the paradigm that medicine has told you to embody. What I tell my my medical students is to not try to become more like medicine, but let medicine bend to fit you a bit. Because when we enter medicine, we're healthier and more whole than I think medicine is right now. And sometimes the process of acculturation can really take away many of the things that are of value. And in the rush to try to fit in, you know, we might actually diminish ourselves rather than then grow and become better. And the third piece is is really to attend to each other, that there's suffering happening in our community all the time, that there's certainly an epidemic of burnout and physician suicide that we are in the midst of. And when you see signs in your colleagues, when you see that, you know, they don't, have the same sense of worry for a patient that they might have once had. Look for compassion burnout. Look for fatigue in the sense that, you know, they have lost their reserve and show up for them and be available because it just might be their life that you're saving. So appreciate you having me and and giving me a chance to discuss what's really important to me. Thank you. No, no, I, I really, I've had the chance to read your book twice, and each time it's just, I mean, it's so inspiring and so uplifting, and I commend you and your husband for really, uh, I mean, you, you talk about purpose, and I, I believe you definitely have an incredible purpose. A big thank you to Dr. Raina Ardish, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.